Do you ever doubt Jesus? I was talking to someone here at church a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they've had a long battle with depression, uh, but they're sharing with me why that's particularly shaking their faith uh, right at the moment. And during this conversation, they say to me, that's why I like talking to you, Jeremy, because you never doubt Jesus. You've always got a rock-solid faith. Which is a nice thing to say, I suppose. But also pretty awkward for me, because I'm thinking, who said I never doubt Jesus? Sometimes I do. So I have to kind of tentatively tell them, oh, actually, I do doubt Jesus sometimes. Since coming to know Jesus 20-odd years ago, I've had some major doubts. I think back to uh, when my dad was dying about 10 years ago. I kept praying over and over that he would come to know Jesus too, while he still could. But in the end, I don't think he did. And that did make me ask, is Jesus even there? Does he really care? Or have I just been like praying to some made-up idea? Even if you've been following Jesus for decades, don't you doubt sometimes? When you think Jesus really should be doing something in, in your life or something in the world, and yet he just doesn't seem to be doing it. If you doubt Jesus, I want to say to you this morning, don't feel too bad. Our passage tells us even the famous John the Baptist doubted Jesus. You're in good company. See, John is the great prophet who first identified Jesus as the saviour of the world. Hundreds of years Israel waited for a saviour, uh, prophesied in their scriptures. John is the one who finally got to say, that guy there, Jesus, He's the one we were waiting for. But now King Herod has arrested John for preaching things he doesn't like. And John comes to doubt what John himself had actually preached to everyone else. Look at verse 2. When John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you? the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Was I wrong, Jesus, to say you're the saviour we were waiting for? Don't feel too bad if you doubt Jesus, even the great prophet John did. Instead, let's ask, why does John doubt Jesus here? And how does Jesus answer John's doubt. As we work through the response of Jesus uh, beyond uh, our reading to the whole of chapter 11, we're going to hear uh, three things. First, why John doubts Jesus. Second, uh, why other people actually outright reject Jesus. And finally, why still other people actually fully embrace Jesus. As we go, I really hope that it helps you to consider your attitude to Jesus yourself. Starting with why John doubts Jesus. What's the cause? Does it have anything to do with the reasons why we might doubt Jesus today? 
Well, the way to understand John's doubt is first, his preaching, and second, the reply from Jesus. So John had preached that Jesus is the one who would actually divide Israel, okay, into those who would be saved and the wicked who must be judged. Now, John hears that Jesus is saving people from the brokenness of this world, healing the blind, deaf, lame, sick. The question is, where's that judgment? Where's the fire? I mean, the wicked go on their merry way. People like King Herod. The faithful, like John, languish in prison under his evil rule. See, Jesus isn't doing what John expected him to do. So he doubts. Can you relate to that? When, when Jesus doesn't come through like you hoped? The reply from Jesus confirms lack of judgment here is the key issue. He says to John's messages, look, look what you see. You see the blind see, the lame walk, uh, the sick are healed, the deaf hear, even the dead are raised, good news to the poor. All these great works of salvation, not a hint of judgment. Which is striking, because Jesus is quoting from the ancient prophet Isaiah. These, these great works of salvation Jesus are doing, they are exactly the works of salvation envisaged by uh, Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, the green text up there. But notice what else Isaiah envisaged at the same time. Judgment on sin. God's vengeance on those who reject him. That's, that's the red text Jesus leaves out. Can you see how it hurt John to get this response back from Jesus? Without judgment on sin, prisoners like John, they can't be saved too. You can't have liberty for captives, a freedom for prisoners, unless the wicked, powerful people like Herod are taken down in judgment. Yet Jesus is quite open here. I am not doing that stuff now. I am doing the works of salvation, which are possible only for the one envisioned by Isaiah, yes. But I'm not doing the judging sin bit, the bit you really need, John. See, Jesus, he actually understands that John's doubt is completely reasonable. And actually, there's a, there's a crowd listening in, and he wants the crowd to know that as well. So he says, first of all, I want you to know John's doubt is not because he's soft. He, he, he's not some bendy reed, like pushed whichever way the wind blows. He's not some fancy man royal figure who can't handle a bit of hardship. He was arrested by one of them for standing up for the truth. No, John is a great prophet. In fact, more than the prophet, he is the prophet that other prophets prophesied about. Jesus quotes uh, Malachi here. 
And the crowd would know what Malachi said about this messenger that, that, that John the Baptist is fulfilling. This messenger, preparing the way for the Lord, playing the Elijah role of, of calling people to repent before it's too late, the role that Jesus says John really plays, it's a role that always was meant to come just before God's judgment on sin. See, Jesus is explaining to the crowd, John, John doesn't doubt because he's soft. He doesn't doubt because he's stupid. John is right to expect Jesus to bring God's judgment. It's what Isaiah said. It's what Malachi said. It's just that Jesus himself is changing the script. John is actually the greatest prophet of all time. Yet Jesus says the least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than him. How can that be? Because even the newest Christian actually gets something about Jesus that even the great prophet John couldn't yet grasp. Jesus didn't come to bring violent judgment on God's enemies like John inspected. Instead, starting with John's imprisonment, Christ's kingdom suffers violence. And by the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus, king of God's kingdom, Jesus himself is eventually beaten, flogged, spat on, stripped naked, shamed and killed on a cross. See, Jesus doesn't bring God's judgment on sin. He takes it in our place so we can be spared it. There is still judgment coming for those of us who reject Jesus, but for those who embrace Jesus, he has already taken it for you. That's how Jesus truly saves. That's what he came to do. That's the plot twist John couldn't yet grasp. But hopefully we can. So the reason John doubts, it isn't exactly why you and I might, is it? Um, over the years I've doubted Jesus myself. Uh, people have shared with me their doubts. It hasn't often been specifically about Old Testament prophecy. I haven't heard many people say they're struggling to trust Jesus because he fulfilled Isaiah 35.5, but what about the judgment in verse 4? Okay. But what we tend to share with John is doubt when our hopes fail. Like John, they're often understandable hopes. I mean, he hoped for the judgment, which Isaiah and Malachi clearly promised, the judgment that would actually free him from prison. That's understandable. I hoped my dad would find Jesus while he could. That's understandable. Many of us hope for a life partner to to make ends meet financially, for a loved one to be healed. All good things. And if Jesus doesn't come through, we, we just can't understand why. But what we mustn't forget in these times is that Jesus has already met our deepest need. He's reconciled us to the God who made us, died the death for sin we deserve, uh, set us up for eternal life with him. 
can actually help us in those times of doubt when we understand and remember what Jesus really came to do for us. Could that help you right now? So there's doubting Jesus and working through those doubts in relationship with Jesus and and his people. That's one thing. But it's very different to outright rejection, which is what Jesus turns to address next. See, most of Israel, especially Israel's religious leaders, uh, they don't just doubt Jesus like John. They actually outright reject him. Why is that? Jesus argues it can't be for the reasons they say it is. Why? Because they actually reject both John and Jesus for completely opposite reasons. See, allegedly, John was too judgmental. They're like, oh, he he even says, turn or burn to, to respected religious leaders. He must be possessed. But Jesus is the opposite. So they're like, oh, he welcomes sinners, parties with them even. Uh, He must be a sinner himself. John's too exclusive. Jesus too inclusive. Okay, come on. Which is it? Jesus says it's like uh, when parents would drag their kids from the villages and farms off to the markets. And so some kids try to get a game going to to pass the time. And they're like, oh, hey, guys, let's play weddings. But the other kids won't join in. It's like, oh, oh, that's that's far too happy. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not in the mood for that. Oh, too happy, huh? Okay. Let's play funerals. Oh, no way. That's too sad. You see, if, if one tune is too happy and... The other tune is too sad. It's pretty clear the real problem isn't the particular tune being played, right? Even if that's what they say, it's clear the real reason is they don't want to dance to someone else's tune. They want to run the game themselves. You see it when kids play Frozen. Have you seen kids play Frozen? It's an old movie, but kids are still doing it. Everyone wants to be Elsa. No one wants to be Anna. Why not? Anna is actually the real hero who sacrificed herself to play Anna, uh, Elsa, save Elsa. But Elsa, well, she's the one who sings Let It Go. All about casting off other people's expectations and doing what you want. Plus, she has ice powers. When you're Elsa, you lead the game. Pains me to say it, but as little Evie grows up, if they're still playing Frozen, she, even he, she will want to be Elsa. That is just all kids. But it's also all adults. We hesitate to say, yes, Jesus is king and put our trust in him for our future because then I'm not in charge. We don't want to dance to his tune. We want to play our own. Which actually means 
despite what many people say, evidence isn't the main reason for rejecting Jesus. Jesus turns to address the towns in his own homeland up north in Galilee, the ones who saw most of his miracles. The blind see, deaf hear, lame walk, sick healed, even the dead raised, right in front of their very eyes, right? But still, even they refuse to trust Jesus as their king. Why? It's not lack of evidence. It's because they want to dance to their own tune. Evidence doesn't come into it. Way back when I became a Christian at uni, one of my friends, Ed, was uh, pretty bemused that I'd uh, fallen for something so dumb as Christianity. Um, So we're sitting under this tree in the great court uh, between lectures, uh, as students do, and he's, he's peppering me with these objections. What about this? What about that? Now, Ed's much smarter than me, funnier than me, sharper than me. Hard to believe, I know. <laughs> Still, for a long time, I seem to be answering surprisingly well. But eventually he goes, he says this. Look, if I was God, this is what I'd do. I'd split the planet halfway down the middle. And then I'd turn each half to face each other. And then I'd appear huge in the middle so that everyone in the world could hear and see me at the same time. And I'd say, look, I'm God, I'm real, and Jesus is the only way to be saved, or whatever you believe now, Jeremy. (laughs) Why doesn't God give proof like that. I mean, if God's real, why is this even a question still? So I'm pretty new to Christianity at the time. I give the best answer I can. But now I think what I said was totally wrong. Do you want to hear my wrong answer? I say to Ed, well, if God gave proof like that, you know, splitting the world, all that stuff, then he'd force us to believe. But God wants us to freely choose him out of love. What do you reckon? Does that sound all right? It actually worked for Ed. For a second, he's, he's speechless, doesn't know how to respond. Only time I've seen Ed lost for words. Just one problem. It is wrong. See, here's the thing. Even if God did that, split the world in half, appear to everyone at the same time. That wouldn't force anyone to believe at all. Anyone who wanted a way out would still find one. You'd wake up the next day and go, that was a weird dream. (laughs) Oh, what? You had the same dream? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it was some chemically induced hallucination, something in the air. Oh, what? What, you're telling me it really was God, was it? Okay then, okay, and how about this? Then you make God do it again right now. Can't, can you? Didn't think so. Case closed. How do we know people would reject Jesus even then? Because they did reject Jesus when he gave them undeniable proof 
over and over and over again. People don't really reject Jesus over evidence. They reject Jesus over preference for living life our own way without him, dancing to our own tune. Can you see some of that in yourself? I reckon it's actually there in all of us. Which might raise a question for you, then how does anyone come to embrace Jesus? If we've all got this drive to to live life our own way without Jesus. Well, Jesus ends this long response to John's doubt with how and why anyone does embrace him. He says this, You will come to him when you know you need him. Like a baby needs their parents, like like Evie needs Josh and Elise. Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to who? To infants. Jesus isn't embraced by the most educated, successful people because because they are self-sufficient. He's embraced by those who are needy enough to know they need Jesus, like a a fully dependent baby. We do fully depend on Jesus because only Jesus can let us know God as our loving Father. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, that's Jesus himself. And anyone to whom the Son reveals him. Our sins cut us off from the God who made us. But Jesus took God's judgment on sin that we deserve so that we can know God, our maker, as our father. Because Jesus does all that for us. That's why he finishes with these famous words. Read them with me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus knows we actually all carry a burden. The the thing that we live for and work for instead of following him, striving for relationship, family, success, the good life, most of us should have lived long enough to see by now, even when we give our whole lives to that thing, we'll never get all we want from it. Relationships, family, success, pleasure, they're never totally fulfilling. And even when it seems like they are, there's always that constant risk of it all being lost. Filling in not so much with satisfaction and enjoyment as worry and fatigue. You think it's what you want in life, but really it's, it's actually a burden weighing you down. Jesus invites you. Give up that heavy burden. Be yoked with me instead.
a yoke actually binds two animals together so they can share the work of pulling the, the plow or whatever that is. I'm not a farmer. <laughs> and Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why? Because when you're yoked with Jesus, he does all the work. You just, you just come along for the ride. His goal for you is to know God as your loving father. And Jesus, what did he do to that end? He died for your sins. He rose again to give you new life. Jesus is God's son himself who teaches you how to live with God as your father. You just follow along. You come to embrace Jesus when you realise I actually don't want to carry this other burden anymore. I actually want Jesus to work salvation for me. Years ago, I'm, I'm getting the train home from work in the city. I, I spot a guy from church who's, uh, so we sit together. Now, Cam, he, he's an interesting guy. Uh, he's, his wife's a Christian. Uh, his kids at this stage were part of kids' church, learning to follow Jesus themselves. Um, but Cam himself was not a Christian. Uh, super involved in the church community, but also very clear that he's not a Christian himself. So we, we actually get to talking about this, and uh, I ask him, hey, Cam, like, what's actually holding you back? Is it like intellectual doubts, you know, stuff about history, science, ethics, stuff like that? Cam's like, no, it's nothing like that. I've read heaps enough to know the evidence for Jesus is way stronger than anything against. Now, it's like this. Uh, we're, we're on a train, so I think that's why he chooses this image. It says, if the Jesus train was on the platform, about to leave, doors closing, please stand clear. I'd hop on right now. Like, I know Jesus is the way to be saved. But since there's no hurry, I really don't want to be confined to that train carriage any earlier than I have to. Now, how does that strike you? At the time, I thought, that is a brilliant image describing how lots of us feel that, that following Jesus is like being confined to a train carriage, but life without Jesus is like freedom to go where you want, to live how you want to live. I think it's, it's brilliant at describing how a lot of us feel, but I also think there's something essential missing from that image. See, the, the alternative to hopping on the Jesus train, as, as Cam put it, it's actually not freedom to do what you want. The alternative is, is actually slavery to trying to push a whole train yourself with your hands and feet. The only upside is you, you get to choose which line the train is on. You get to choose what you're aiming at, whether it's a, you know, romance, career, kids, financial security. But no matter how hard you push, you will never get as far as you want. And it's exhausting. 
Instead, the, the Jesus train will carry you all the way to loving relationship with the God who made you. By comparison, that is a joy ride. You want to hop on ASAP. So what are you living for? Think about, is it really essential for you to keep living for that rather than Jesus? Is it, is it really going to give you all that you want? Or can you start to see how it actually really is a burden that's been weighing you down? Jesus doesn't promise to give you what you want any more than he promised to free John from prison. But he invites you to swap that burden for life with him. He offers you forgiveness and new life with God achieved by him for you. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. I want to pray that we all find rest in Jesus. You might want to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we must confess that we do want many good things that Jesus doesn't deliver, not yet anyway. Father, help us not to forget what he has delivered, that he has died for our sins, that he has arisen to give us new life, that he actually lets that new life start now in loving relationship with you. Father, those of us who follow Jesus, help us to let go of the burdens that we're trying to carry at the same time. Those of us who are still intent on living life our own way, dancing to our own tune, help us to think about if that is really the best way to go. I pray, Father, that you would speak to us in our minds and hearts, that, that you would show us, that you would reveal yourself to us through your Son, as only he can reveal you. In Jesus' name, amen.